0: Yeah, you know, I think Bill's uh, sort of midlife change is hugely inspirational to me. We have this notion in society of the average, ever how do you say that? Avaricious rich, I think, uh, is how you put that, or the the selfish, the greedy, greedy bastards, the greedy bastards. And I think you know that certainly does uh, exist. Bill Gates was at this moment in his life where he was the richest person on planet Earth. He was leading uh, the company that had the highest market cap and adjusted for inflation. Microsoft's market cap then is still higher than any company's uh, market or is a fraction of the stock market, actually. It's still higher back then than any company has achieved since. And I think he stepped back and said, geez, I've done this. What's my responsibility as a human being now? What should the richest person on planet Earth do? And I think that pivot to really focusing on, on helping the world's poor uh, was totally brilliant and morally dead on.
1: Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously, people don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App. And coffee, seriously, disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. What if I told you I could read your mind? How creepy would that be? We could change the world. It could just be a nightmare too. Either way, it would be incredibly interesting and quite a thought experiment. And it's one that today's guest actually went through. Ramez Nam is without a doubt one of the most interesting people i've ever met he's a computer scientist a futurist an angel investor an award-winning author and he's on the faculty at singularity university he's best known for his nexus trilogy which was an award-winning series looking at what happens when humanity has a mind merge and he's also written a couple of really influential nonfiction books the infinite resource the powers of ideas and more than human embracing the promises of biological enhancement He's the co-chair at Singularity University focused on energy and the environment, which we'll dive deep, deep into in this episode. I learned a ton, and I'm sure you guys will too. And he worked early on with Bill Gates at Microsoft. He's co-patented quite a few things with Bill. In fact, he's appeared everywhere you could imagine under the sun, and now he is here on The Disruptors just for you guys. In today's episode, we talk about why we're at a tipping point when it comes to carbon emitting cars sold worldwide, what it was like working with Bill Gates, especially in the early days. What Ramez predicted about renewable energy and why it's actually better than he even thought. How technologists are solving global problems by fixing incentives and driving down costs. Why Ramez is not a big believer anymore when it comes to radical life extension. The Brain 2.0 movement and why we're becoming cyborgs. Seriously. How Ramez thinks about CRISPR and genetically engineered people and a couple of the other incredibly interesting topics they're kicking around there at Singularity University. This one's fun, interesting, and I know you guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, I give you Rames Nam.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: You've had a very interesting career, and I wanted to start out with what's been the highlight of your career? Oh my gosh,
0: I think... Um... I've been privileged to be in the right place and the right time to make an impact or at least to work on stuff that touches millions, potentially billions of people. And I, I don't think that's because I'm special. I got hired out of college at Microsoft. And when you're in a company like that, the decisions you uh, make have scale. And so I consider that uh, a real privilege and great fortune.
1: And since being a computer programmer, you've really expanded a bit. Now, now you're into life sciences. You're Singularity University's uh, clean tech chair? How, how, did you get, how did you get such a expansive experience? Because there's got to What's the story here? What's the 30,000-foot yeah. overview?
0: Well, the, the story is, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> I might just, just never grow up. Uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by the future and by technology. I grew up reading science fiction and just really thinking about how science and technology can change the world. And so I, I quit Microsoft twice. Uh, the most recent time was almost a decade ago now. And so when I quit once, I founded a tech startup. Uh, the dot bomb happened. I didn't know what to do. So I wrote a book about uh, science I was seeing. I would just read scientific papers for fun. And I saw this technology coming down the pipe that could augment people, make people cyborgs, make people smarter, put on the aging process. So I wrote a book about that. Went back to Microsoft, uh, did a bunch of stuff in internet search, machine learning, what we call big data and cloud computing now, and then decided to do something else. And along the way, I fell in love with a planet. I really hadn't been an environmentalist at all, but I just sort of fell in love with water. I'm a scuba diver and snorkeler and lifeguard. And that led me down the road of looking at uh, solutions to environmental problems. And that really led me to energy. Uh, and somewhere along that path, I turned some of my, uh, the research I had done for my first book on human enhancement into a series of science fiction novels. And that's also a great excuse to learn about and pontificate about all sorts of technologies and, and scientific areas.
1: So I'm a, a dilettante. An ADD overachiever. That's <laughs> incredible things. I love it. As someone who could like stuff, hop into different projects. That's, uh, yeah, that, that's perfect. I want to I wanna figure out why that happened. Before we get into the what, I want to figure out why. So what was it that inspired you when you were younger? You said you liked sci-fi. Was that the, was that the kicker? Maybe. So I'm an immigrant kid. Uh, my folks came to the U.S. from
0: Egypt when I was three years old. And uh, A, they, they fought to stay. It was legally incredibly challenging, but eventually, you know, legally stayed in the U.S. And I grew up here and that changed my life. But so I, I grew up sort of absorbing pop culture. Like at age three, I spoke zero English whatsoever. And so it was probably cartoons like Voltron and, and things like that, that influenced my very, very young brain. And that led me into science fiction. And science fiction, I think, is me really the literature of ideas. It's the literature where you talk about how could the world change. And that spurred my interest in science and technology.
1: And that brings you, that brings you here. So you come out of school, you joined Microsoft, an incredibly promising company. What, what year was this? 1995. 1995. So can you, can you date us a little bit for that? It's like the iPhone was 13 years ago. What was 1995 other than Windows 95?
0: Yeah, so I joined in, in January of, of 1995, mid-January. And at the time, it was Windows 3.1 was out, uh, the, the old-style Mac operating systems, pre OS X. No tablets, no smartphones, really. I mean, there actually was Windows for a pen. Uh, I worked on that in college, actually, believe it or not, or software for that. So it was, it was, you know, the, sort of the Mac versus PC battle, all client-side computing, office productivity, Excel, access databases, that sort of thing. So the first thing I did was work on shipping email functionality in Windows 95 that shipped in August. So that was my first understanding that even though I came onto that project late, That little changes that I made uh, in that email client, you know, would go on to affect the experience of a billion people. I was like, wow, okay, I better take this seriously, A. And B, technology is this incredible scalable lever or tool set by which you can change the lives of billions of people. And that's really compelling. What was it like working with Gates? I know
1: jobs was quite hard and I've heard similar things about Gates.
0: You know, by the time I started working with Gates, it was really um, 2003 or 4. And by that point, I think he had mellowed a lot. In his younger days, uh, legends of Bill yelling at people and being mean in meetings. Uh, I was in a lot of meetings. I was in a, you know, at least a couple dozen meetings with Bill, including some, just some one-on-one conversations when necessary. And I think I saw him raise his voice once. So he had, he had matured, I think, uh, both as a manager and a human being. By that point, he was a wicked smart, still is a wicked smart human being. Uh, he would give us input on our ideas and plans in search that sometimes I didn't really understand the, the impact of or the importance of what he was saying for a year or two later. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's what Bill was saying back then. So um, a
1: pretty impressive human being. Incredibly, especially considering what he built and then how he's been able to leverage that for good. That's something that I think a lot of tech giants need to be learning from.
0: Yeah, you know I think Bill's uh, sort of midlife change is hugely inspirational to me. We have this notion in society of the average, aver, how do you say that avaricious rich I think uh, is how you put that or the, the selfish, the greedy the, bastards, the greedy bastards, and I think you know that certainly does uh, exist. Bill Gates was at this moment in his life where he was the richest person on planet Earth. He was leading uh, the company that had the highest market cap and adjusted for inflation. Microsoft's market cap then is still higher than any company's uh, market or is a fraction of the stock market, actually. It's still higher back then than any company has achieved since. And I think he stepped back and said, geez, I've done this. What's my responsibility as a human being now? What should the richest person on planet Earth do? And I think that pivot to really focusing on, on helping the world's poor uh, was totally brilliant and morally dead on. You made a big pivot around the same time. Why? Mm, you know, I spent 13 years at Microsoft in two stints. I ran a tech startup that, that bombed, actually, I mean, the, the bubble burst around when we were uh, getting going. And I think I just wanted to try something new for a little bit. And when I... Left Microsoft the second time around, two thousand nine. You know, my idea was to write some books, and uh, if it didn't work out, honestly, I had sort of the privilege and good fortune of having had a career in tech, so I knew I could go back and get a tech job. Uh, And that's something that most people uh, setting out on their own don't have that sort of fallback option. But fortunately for me, uh, it did work. People liked my sci-fi, my uh, book on. Uh, clean energy and innovation to save the planet uh, started me down the road of speaking and angel investing. And so a whole new career took off. But without that platform of economic security, of having a nest egg from Microsoft and knowing that I was employable in tech,
1: I probably wouldn't have taken that risk. There are two ways I could take this, both the immigrant route and the having the nest egg or the, the security net, which are both political, but not the incredibly interesting part about you. We'll get to those later. But what I want to ask you about now is you become an author, both nonfiction and sci-fi. What's the dichotomy of that like?
0: Oh, goodness. So non, both types of books, actually, if you do it well, you're smarter at the end of writing the book than you were at the beginning. I set out to book, write a book about innovating in energy, food, water, saving the planet, because I thought I knew some stuff. I'd done a lot of research. But it, it turns out by the time I'd finished the book, I knew so much more than I had when I started so that's that's fun and compelling, uh, but there's a different kind of experience that readers have. And what I found is that my science fiction moves people emotionally a lot more than any nonfiction. So nobody ever you know comes up to me and says, "Damn you, you kept me up till three a.m. reading your nonfiction book," but they do that with my sci-fi. So that's also a pretty interesting. Humans aren't really wired for data or evidence, or at least not for statistics. We're wired for narrative. That's what grips us emotionally. That's what holds our attention. And so the narratives we create are superpowers. They actually sort of bypass a lot of uh, rational thought in humans and go straight to this this part of us that wants to hear a story and follow that story. So I, I love doing that. I love when people tell me that they you know, skipped sleep or were late for work, or you know, whatever. Uh, that's the best compliment you can give to an author: is I didn't feed my kids because your book was so good. Not really, of course, but that's the sort of thing you want to hear. But it's also something to be careful of. How can we, in the media environment we have today, convey narratives that are actually representative
1: of uh, the broader truth? What would be some examples of of warning tales?
0: Well, I mean, there's lots of good uses of fiction to produce narratives that are both things that we should avoid or that we should pursue. And there's a recent trend of criticizing sci-fi for being so dystopian. But if you read 1984 or something like that, it effectively was warning us that information technology could be used to manipulate the masses. And I think that's very, very useful. I think actually, even as uh, sort of messed up as the media landscape and fake news and so on is today. It's nothing like what 1984 posited. And I think that's partially because a story like 1984 inoculated us against government control of
1: the media. Yeah, the sci-fi plays such, a, such an important role. And I think there is that big importance of knowing it's not true, but knowing it could be that differs from the, the problems today with media. So what, how'd your life change after you wrote the books?
0: It put me on a a different sort of profile, I would say. Working in a big company, if you're not the CEO or one of the the top executives, you can have a massive impact. People don't really know who you are. And in a way, writing books, you have less capability. You're not managing a team or collaborating uh, with dozens or hundreds of other people working on building something, uh, but it's you, you have complete artistic control and the work is directly associated with you as a human being. And that's quite interesting. It gives you a platform where, uh, frankly, your ideas or my ideas on topics that are separate from my books get listened to just because people have tuned into me because they like my books, or they like my talks.
1: And after that, you decided, I want to do something that freaking matters. I want to try to help the world in some way. Was there a catalyst?
0: Yeah, very cliche environmental awakening was in a, on a beach in Mexico and just, you know, one of those perfect days, crystal clear, blue-green water, just totally fell in love with it. it had a magical day. There was some litter up the beach. This is a beach uh, near Tulum, Mexico, in the Yucatan. And I just started thinking, like, well, why is there litter? Like, why would people litter in such a beautiful place? This planet's so gorgeous. And litter is actually not that big an environmental problem in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but that asking that question sort of led me down the road of investigating What was the state of the environment and asking myself, what's my responsibility as a human being? What do I need to do
1: here? What year was this? Was this the early clean tech wave before a lot of the startups failed or was this the second wave?
0: Uh, This was the mid-2000s. So at the time, I wasn't an investor at the time and I wasn't really thinking a lot about startups. I really just started looking at data about uh, prices, really, about what's the cost of solar power? What's the cost of batteries? And what I found was something that looks a lot like Moore's Law, not as fast as Moore's Law, but I found that the cost of solar power was dropping exponentially, the cost of batteries was dropping exponentially. And I you know, put those in Excel and charted it out and said, my goodness, I think around 2015, we'll start to see uh, solar power in some parts of the world cheaper than coal. And at the time, when I first, I wrote that as an article for Scientific American around 2011, people thought I was crazy. Like, uh, both environmentalists and energy people thought that I was nuts. Environmentalists said, you know, how can you dare be so optimistic? You're so naive. And energy people said, how can you be so foolish? Energy doesn't work like that, you know, tech boy. You're so naive. And it turns out, you know, I was wrong. I was a little bit too pessimistic. <laughs> the actual decline in the price of solar and of batteries has been a little bit faster than I forecast then. Uh, so that's a good uh, a lesson for me as well.
1: And where are we at today? Just have an idea of the magnitude of change.
0: Yeah, so today, we're still a very long way from decarbonizing the world. In fact, carbon emissions are rising, but the cost of clean technology has plunged, and that's really going to be the driver. So in the sunniest parts of the world, electricity from solar or wind without any subsidies is now about one-third of the price of electricity from coal or gas. And uh, that's places like Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi, you know, very sunny places or very windy places as well. And in the U.S., wind power is now cheaper than coal or gas. Solar in the Southwest, in Arizona, Nevada, in Southern California, and Texas is now, even if you take away all the subsidies, cheaper than building new coal or gas. And that's the leading indicator. It's getting those low prices is what then starts to create a tipping point in the market where the switchover occurs.
1: Not only that, but I hear it's the, the fastest growing sector for, third, uh, for blue-collar jobs as well.
0: It is. Solar installer is the fastest growing job in America. There's you know, well over 100,000 jobs in solar now. I think it's actually closer to a quarter million jobs in solar now. A lot of that's installation, installation on rooftops. A lot of it's also utility-scale solar, which is most of how we deploy it. And then wind uh, turbine technician is also a fast-growing job in some Great Plains and upper Midwestern states
1: where the wind is really great. Those both sound much better than being underground mining for coal. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit absurd what's happening. I don't think we have to get into that. Most people that are listening are very well aware of that. Where are we headed? So I know, I know wind is pretty competitive right now. Solar is projected to be far and away the, the cheapest because we have a big freaking zone with lots of solar. What, yeah. where, where are we headed and what are some of those implications as the costs do come down further and further? Will we, will we turn the corner? Well, we've got, to, we've got to turn the corner on a number of things. And I just had a,
0: a tweet storm about the Green New Deal and, and what a comprehensive climate plan looks like. We've got to solve electricity, about a quarter of our emissions. We've got to solve transportation, about a quarter of the world's emissions. We've got to solve Industry and uh, building heat, you know, steel, cement, manufacturing, and and heating our buildings another quarter. And then the last quarter is agriculture and deforestation. Uh, So on the first two, on electricity and transportation, I think we're approaching tipping points. We had this event happen uh, just a couple of months ago in northern Indiana. This utility, NIPSCO, made this announcement. NIPSCO is 65% coal power today. They're in uh, an area in northern Indiana that has uh, pretty mediocre solar resources, really, and has above average, like pretty good but not amazing wind speeds. And Indiana went for Trump by 19 points. NIPSCO announced late last year that in their five-year resource plan, the cheapest way to provide energy for their customers was to shut down almost all of that coal power And replace it with solar, wind, batteries, and flexible demand, not over 30 years, but by 2023, to go from 65% coal today to 15% coal, just four years away now. And then by 2028, uh, 10 years at the time they wrote the plan to be at zero coal. So that, I mean, that was an amazing, amazing moment. The CEO of NextEra, which is one of the largest uh, utilities in the US and operates Florida power and light and also builds a lot of solar and wind. He was quoted as saying, uh, by the early 2020s, 2022, maybe, it'd be cheaper for them to build new solar or wind than to operate their existing coal power plants. So, of course, that's based somewhat on geography. It's helped by some tax credits that we have. But as we hit those tipping points, you'll see more and more uh, parts of the world, starting with the sunniest and the windiest, uh, start to realize, wow, we should just actually turn off coal plants, build more solar and wind. And that, in turn, scales solar and wind, and that brings their prices down further.
1: I know this was one of the fears that China had recently started building more coal. Can you comment on that?
0: You know, there's some, some ambiguous stuff there, but it, it, there was some satellite imagery saying that it looks like some uh, coal power plants that the Chinese government had ordered uh, shut down or canceled, not even shut down, canceled, like they shouldn't finish the construction, had restarted construction. I think there's two or three things happening there. One is the Chinese central government doesn't always have great control over what the provinces do, believe it or not. Two is the the dates of that satellite imagery actually sort of are before the most aggressive wave of coal plant cancellations in China. But net, even if some of those are restarting, like the number of coal power plants that were in the pipeline in China or in India five years ago has shrunk by at least three quarters. Uh, and so we're not quite done building new coal power plants yet, but we're probably you know three or four years away from being almost entirely done, except for the, the places that have the very worst wind and
1: very worst, worst sun. I've heard there's been a lot of economic engineering, so to speak, in China as well, creating fake jobs, essentially doing things that don't need doing just to be able to to boost GDP and growth. So that could potentially be part of restarting the coal?
0: Yeah, I think that's some of it. And, you know, China has become a much more capitalist place over the last few decades, but it's still uh, in some ways a command economy and the incentives people are given don't always come down to just market prices. So I think a lot of people, you know, get incented for building
1: infrastructure, whether or not it actually gets used, which is sort of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And then again, we have similar problems here, but yeah. not, not, to, not to be pessimistic. So talking about the future of energy. Where do you see the future of energy going for specifically transportation? I know battery has been big, especially in Silicon Valley. I hear yeah. other people saying that fuel cell is actually a much more realistic opportunity because the batteries are ridiculously expensive and heavy. What are your thoughts, someone who's there in the middle of it? Battery electric vehicles have won. Uh, they've
0: won for light passenger cars. They probably have won for light and medium trucks, like the UPS or FedEx truck that delivers your your packages to you. And it looks like they're likely to win for for long-range trucks. And the reason for that is they, they have, A, a lower part count than a fuel cell vehicle. Like Part of the advantage of battery vehicles is they have one-tenth the number of moving parts of gasoline or diesel vehicles. And add putting in a fuel cell and hydrogen storage and so on doesn't get you all the way back to the part count of a gasoline vehicle, but it adds a bunch of pumps and containment and You still have to have a battery because the fuel cell can't easily go up and down in power output. So it makes it a more complex vehicle. Two, if you imagine you're going to fill this fuel cell with hydrogen, you've got a bunch of problems. One, you've got to build the infrastructure for hydrogen fueling. And battery vehicles benefited from the fact that everybody's got power at home and power at work and so on. So they got to bootstrap off that. And two, you lose a bunch of the efficiency gains. Uh, Battery electric vehicles today are probably at parity with gasoline or diesel vehicles in overall cost. If you add up not just the cost of buying the car, but the maintenance costs are much lower in electric, and the energy cost per mile in electric is a quarter or even a tenth the energy cost per mile of gasoline. But if you want to do a fuel cell, what happens is, and you want the hydrogen to be carbon free, what happens is you use solar or wind or nuclear, something carbon free to make the hydrogen. And in so doing, you lose maybe a third of the energy because that's not a 100% efficient process. Then you distribute the hydrogen out to places, and then you put it in the fuel cell and you use the fuel cell to turn that back into electricity to run the vehicle, and you're throwing away more of the energy. So you're losing about three quarters of the energy if you do a hydrogen fuel cell type vehicle, as opposed to just taking the electricity from that power source and routing it straight into the batteries. Uh, And so we see this. Toyota is really the company that was most pushing fuel cells, and they just signed a $10 billion deal with Panasonic for batteries. Uh, GM says their future is all electric. Uh, Nissan is already going full bore on electric. Volkswagen reeling from Dieselgate says they're going to invest $50 billion in electric vehicles over the next few years. Mm,
1: Go ahead. Are we in trouble with the amount of rare earth metals that are needed for these, lithium specifically?
0: There's going to be some challenges. Lithium is one challenge, but we have technology uh, in the works, at least, to extract lithium from places that it can't be economically extracted today. So I, you know, I invest in clean energy startups, and I've talked to startups that have ways to uh, pull lithium out of brines, saltwater, underwater deposits that were once thought to be too low concentration to be economical, or that have ways to find uh, lithium ores in other places, or battery recycling startups. There's several of those around the world now. So I'm not so worried about lithium. Uh, the bigger challenge is cobalt. Most lithium-ion battery chemistries rely on cobalt, though to varying degrees. And cobalt really comes uh, just from one place, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is neither democratic nor republic. Uh, <laughs> That's how it always works. <laughs> yeah, if you have to put that in the name, then and it's, I mean, it's a human rights problem, to be totally honest. Uh, there, it's, it's not a, a pretty situation. So what you see there is that every battery manufacturer is working on ways to reduce or eliminate the cobalt from their batteries, because no one wants to be dependent on a mineral that's really just found in one place on Earth. And which China is buying up and investing as much as possible. Sure. I mean, China also owns 85% of the battery market now.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible there. It's definitely setting up for an interesting power dynamic. Hopefully, it does not come to something more problematic than economic bullying, I guess.
0: Well, and hopefully it's a win-win. There's, you know, when Chinese manufacturers are making low-cost solar panels, for instance, it makes it cheaper for people all around the world to deploy solar and thus to decarbonize. So, you know, commerce is a voluntary exchange where both parties feel that they benefit. So I'm not as freaked out as others by... Chinese-owned companies driving so much of uh, the manufacturing of solar and batteries. But I do think it was a missed opportunity for the U.S. Those could be U.S. industries bringing revenue into
1: the U.S. and jobs in the U.S. But realistically, manufacturing is not coming back. It's too expensive.
0: Yeah, you know, maybe. Actually, I think it might, because the, you know, one of the great stories of China is back in the 80s and 90s, people were complaining about sweatshops. But what that was, was it was dollars from the U.S. and Europe pouring into China uh, to fund uh, manufacturing of all sorts there. And that has massively uplifted uh, people in China and workers in China. And so now the wage disparity between U.S. workers and Chinese workers is growing ever, ever smaller. So that means at some point, it may be cheaper to manufacture stuff closer to the consumer, or there might be just less of a a global wage imbalance driving some of that uh, decision of where to put manufacturing.
1: I agree. I, I would think it would go more to, to India or to, to Mexico. And also, China is so much better at manufacturing than we are. It's true. They've built that industry up. And they want it more. My, my, my background was e-commerce and trying to work with U.S. factories was a nightmare. They wouldn't even reply. They were too lazy. That's fair. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate.
0: I will say one more thing about transportation. We hit an amazing point, maybe, last year. We had a couple of points. So for a while now, analysts like Bloomberg Energy Finance have been saying that at the rate at which electric cars are growing, electric vehicle sales are growing, the peak year for sales of gasoline and, and diesel cars would come in the next few years, like maybe 2023, 2022. Right. So not the end of sales, but from that point on, annual sales of you know, combustion engine cars would be declining. That point might have happened already. It almost certainly happened in China. It probably happened in about June of 2018 in China. 2017 overall for China was a bigger sales year for uh, combustion engine cars than 2018 was, and June might have been the, the highest month that China will ever see and it might have even happened globally last year. Every forecast now calls for 2019 to be a lower sales year for combustion engine cars and by the time uh, that sort of cyclic uh, change in the market uh, comes back around and the auto industry as a whole starts growing, electric vehicles may be taking up all of the growth. So we're not certain that peak still might be out in 2021, 2022, but we might have hit, you know, the peak of the traditional auto industry last year.
1: Let's play devil's advocate. How much of that do you think is due to the, the improvements and cost benefits of electric vehicles? And how much of it do you think is due to the fact of, hey, mom, don't buy a new car because everything's going autonomous and you know, won't need it? <laughs> I don't think uh, autonomy has really
0: uh, affected the upgrade cycle as it were uh, yet. I don't think people, besides the listeners of your podcast, of course, who I'm sure are aware of all of this, but I don't think mom uh, is delaying a car purchase because of autonomy. I think there's more just sort of global macro stuff that affected 2019 versus 2018. But a lot of what's driven it is sort of this, this feedback loop that happens between policy that, you know, forces or subsidizes a deployment of the new tech and then the learning rate of new tech, which is to say that as you grow volume of electric car sales, the price of electric cars drop. And so policy starts, starts it off, primes that pump, or really, in this case, Tesla did an amazing job. You know, Elon wrote this post about Tesla's secret master plan back in 2006 or so, where he said, look, we're going to sell a quarter million dollar sports car. We're going to change the world. We're going to save the planet and climate change. We'll do it by selling a quarter million dollar sports car. Okay, Obviously, that's not going to do much, but we'll use that as the starting point to get us to building an $80,000 luxury car. Okay, that's still too expensive. We'll use that scaling to get us to the point of building a $35,000 uh, sort of family car, which they're, you know, I think now they're down to $43,000 for the Model 3. And that, that feedback loop of getting more scale lets you, you know, reinvest, innovate on the platform, innovate in the manufacturing, bring down the prices, which then means you can get more scale because your product is cheaper. That's a virtuous cycle. It's a flywheel, as Amazon would say. And that's what's really changing
1: the world. And it's incredible in, in what's happening. Would Love, uh, just what Elon's doing. He's doing, trying to do the same thing with SpaceX as well. It's, uh, it's fascinating the way to see. And that is for people listening that want to solve a big problem. What are the small steps to get to the big problem? So speaking of big problems, I hear you want to, you're one of those Silicon Valley guys that wants to live forever and it's focused on longevity. <laughs> you, you're going to be more than human. You know, I'm, I'm really not, actually. I mean, I, I
0: wrote, I've got this book that came out in 2003, More Than Human, or 2004, something like that, where I talked about, you know, technology and science to slow down the aging process. Honestly, that has come along uh, much more slowly than I expected. Uh, I think, you know, some of your uh, listeners will understand this analogy. Biology is code, but it's spaghetti code. It's not documented... And everything uh, has a side effect on everything else. So it's been very, very hard to actually make headway in that area. I sort of keep a pulse on what's happening in longevity research and uh, longevity startups. And most of what's out there that's pitched to the public as longevity is really like increasing uh, health span, lowering your odds of dying up to a certain point. So I think we're going to see, you know, people, especially in fairly affluent countries, or people who are affluent themselves living increasingly to 90 100 105 and living with more vitality living younger with more health more independence but i don't really see a lot out there that suggests to me that we're going to break the the limit of you know roughly 120 years of life anytime soon
1: when you think anytime soon would would you put 20, 50 years on that 50 years from now that'll be an average or do you think that's too soon you know maybe in 50 years it'll be possible to start pushing that envelope.
0: I think what's going to happen is that overall, life expectancy will continue to to rise rapidly in the developing world, right? Global life expectancy was 30-some years in 1900, it was 66 years in 2000. So that's really infant mortality, infectious disease, so we'll keep nipping those things in the bud. And life expectancy at age 40, you know, will keep rising too. We'll get better at heart disease, better at cancer all of those sorts of things. So 50 years from now, the average American who's born uh, 50 years from now might live 10 years longer than they do today, something like that, especially if we can get a grip on some of the issues of poverty and depression and, and opiates right now that are, that are causing some early mortality. Will we really have widespread technology that lets a lot of people live longer than 100 years?
1: I'm doubtful. It could happen, but I'm doubtful. What are the debates like at that at Singularity University?
0: Uh, You know, (laughs) a little contentious at times, I would say. Uh, I think the thing that non-biologists seldom grasp, and I'm a non-biologist myself, but I've been forced to grapple with this, is just how complicated biology is and how easy it is in seeking to improve something to break 10 other things. And even if you tweak exactly the gene that you wanted to tweak uh, and you get the effect that you wanted, you don't see the side effects coming. Like, here's an example. There's a gene in mice, uh, IGF-1. If we turn it off, those mice live 40% longer. Now, it's uh, like 100% longer in fruit flies, and it's like 400% longer in uh, nematodes, little tiny groundworms. So by the time we got to humans, tweaking that gene might only be like 10%. Something like that, who knows, really. But if you do this to rats, they also end up as dwarfs that don't get nearly as big, right? So it, it's, not, it's not a trivial problem to change just one
1: thing in biology. Yeah, we know people, people used to be shorter, and it definitely, had, <laughs> it definitely has its perks. Um, the smaller you are, the, the less you need to burn through. You invested, uh, you invested in Caribou Life Sciences. Wasn't that the company that had the, the CRISPR patent dispute?
0: I did, yeah. Caribou with uh, Jennifer Dudna, the person who I think most scientists give the credit to for CRISPR, he is uh, a company I invested in through my good friend uh, Dr. Jenny Ruck, uh, who through her Angelus Syndicate, and now she's uh, she's really focusing her time on her venture fund, uh, Genoa Partners. And yeah, I couldn't resist. That's a platform technology, right? Something like CRISPR is a platform technology for biology. It's a, a new, better editor that you can use for a whole lot of things. Uh, and it seems that uh, just in the last few weeks, there's been some good news for UC Berkeley and probably for Caribou on that patent dispute as well. Ooh, I didn't know that. That that mm-hmm. will be a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I think what's going to happen is probably a patent uh, truce is I think what people are thinking is most likely now, where both parties, really right, three different parties that have uh, some claim there, all get to to make use of the patents. And honestly, uh, even original CRISPR Cas nine is probably going to be supplanted by newer and
1: better uh, CRISPR variants and other gene editing techniques over time. Yeah, and, and like you said, editing one thing often has multiple side effects. Sickle, yeah. cell, sickle cell anemia also helps you not get malaria. So two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So I, I want to I transition a little bit into Brain 2.0. This was kind uh-huh. of the genesis of, of your books, which you, you did pretty darn well with those books, I hear.
0: They are popular, uh, it was sort of right time, right place, the, the Nexus series, uh, so I'm, I'm delighted that, that they spoke to people.
1: And what was, the, what was the reason why they spoke to people? Talk a little bit about the premise of connecting brains and what you've been seeing today in the real world. Yeah, I think they spoke to people because
0: they touched on a couple different things. One, the premise of the technology was that we would have uh, a non-invasive brain tech. You swallow a vial of uh, silvery metallic fluid, it's uh, sold as a party drug it gets into your brain and it attaches to your neurons and gives you basically Wi-Fi, other people would have the same, same thing. So I think that was sort of, William Gibson talked about cyberpunk, but as uh, something for the elite. And I think about technology like mobile phones being incredibly democratized, getting up to billions of people. So it was, if we could have brain tech and basically anyone could have it, what's interesting there? And then I think, you know, the brain is, is where we all live. And I think uh, this, the, the things I explored of how it affects affect people personally touched people. And then I also used those books as a polemic against the war on drugs and war on terror. And I think that was a uh, right time, right place. So that's what got attention for them, I think. In terms of where we are on brain tech, I mean, there's a flurry of activity right now. The brain is also a very, very hard place to work. You know, the first rule of medicine is do no harm. And so we have to be very, very cautious when working on humans in general. That said, there's a raft of companies out there. My friend Brian Johnson, his company, Kernel, is working on a next-generation direct brain computer interface technology to let us connect our brains to a software or the cloud. Uh, Elon, of course, has Neuralink working on a different sort of uh, brain computer interface technology. I've been lucky enough to spend time with both Brian and not with Elon, but with Elon's team at Neuralink. Uh, Mary Lou Jepsen has open water working on using lasers that to shine through the first few millimeters of your cortex and ultrasound to do brain computer uh, interface. So there's just so much happening. At the same time, it's just, it's the brain. So it's really hard. And I think it will take. Longer than I predicted in my sci fi for this sort of technology to
1: really come to fruition. Will it lead to multiple species of human, as some people opt for and some people opt against?
0: I mean, you know, my girlfriend and I argue that she's in the Apple species and I'm in the Android species. So <laughs> I think that's sort of the level of these things. I don't really think we're going to have runaway bifurcation of humans, or some people talk about runaway inequality. I address this in More Than Human. What if? Some people have the economic means to upgrade themselves, and others don't. And then upgrading yourself lets you make more money. Well, is that a runaway dynamic? Yeah, it could be. But we used to worry about the digital divide, too. We used to worry that only the rich would have access to uh, PCs and 9600-baud you know, modems, right? And that would be a driver of inequality. But overwhelmingly, digital technology has been a driver of more equality of opportunity, not more inequality. On a so, global basis, but not on, on a local, local basis. basis. You know, so on a local basis, I think there's really sort of three different parts of this. One is the, on the people who are consuming the technology, what does it do to the rich and to the poor? And I would say on a local basis, there's a, a case to be made in the U.S. that the, the cheap, ubiquitous digital tech uplifts people who are low-income more than it does people who are high-income, or it levels that playing ground. If you know, 20 years ago, if you were uh, quite wealthy, you could have access to a Bloomberg trading terminal and have uh, access to all these information sources, you'd have to pay through the nose for it. Now, anybody in America with a smartphone has it, so it's leveled that playing field. There's a different phenomenon, which is, it does lead to tremendous economic returns for the people that invent and own those digital platforms. And that's really because of, of network effects. That's because that if you create something digital, and especially if it has a network effect, you can scale it to a gigantic audience in a way that we couldn't scale old jobs. If you were a factory worker, or if you were even a playwright or an actor in the era of uh, just plays or theater, there's a limit to how many people you could reach. Once we had movies and one actor could reach a billion people, then you had this you know, huge inequality among actors and a concentration of the wealth of actors going to just the ones that were big blockbuster stars. And that's what's happening in tech. It's not about the, the consumers. It's that the people that make the platforms that
1: reach the most can reap these enormous benefits. Even if they're garbage movies like Bird uh, Bird Box,
0: <laughs> no comment.
1: That's it. That's a yes. You're driving with your eyes closed, right? So I haven't, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either, but it's gotten pretty, pretty subpar reviews. But I, you don't think there's going to be some type of? Let's say you were a hundred IQ points higher than I was, or fifty. <laughs> okay. This wouldn't be a very interesting conversation. Won't, won't we? Will we reach the point where there are those differences, not necessarily economic, but driven by economics where the rich have smarter more attractive longer living children why would they be interested in someone who is kind of like you talking to a 5 year old do we risk that dynamic as we mess with potentially intelligence
0: i mean we have some of that dynamic in society today to be clear so there's more a sort of mating in the us than ever before which is to say that people seek out spouses of similar educational level similar economic background of their families and a similar politics. And that's a stronger uh, force in the U.S. than it is today. And if you look at what's happening in education in the U.S., family background is the, the number one predictor. Kids from families in the bottom 20% by income enter school two years behind kids in the top 20% at first grade. And they stay that far behind uh, throughout their schooling career. It's the, the impact of that is the differences in educational outcomes are less about how good the schools are and more about what's the home environment that you have. So that exists today. And I think that's a problem society ought to be working on. And I'm actually optimistic about digital tech uh, for transforming that. If you look at some of the, the apps that cost a few bucks or are free that you can get on a tablet, uh, you've got apps for little kids that are you know, really immersive, that are teaching them to read and do math and teaching them science and so on. And so I actually have some hope that whether or not we get universal pre-K, we have this opportunity through technology to level that playing ground, right? Now, bring it back to what you're talking about with genetic engineering or brain interfaces. I'm super dubious that will drive more change. Like, A, parents are so conservative about things they do with their kids. You ask any parent what they want for their kid when they're pregnant, they'll just say, we want a healthy kid, right? Any genetic edit, as we were talking about before, has all these risks. And so what parent is going to do something, let's say uh, we want to boost their intelligence, well, the single allele, the single gene we know of that has the highest correlation with IQ is an allele of the Compt gene. And it maybe accounts for, you know, uh, maybe a couple IQ points, for like, you know, a couple percent of the deviation or the distribution in uh, IQ in humans. Great. Let's boost it. Well... The version of that, the allele of that, that gives the greatest odds of higher IQ also increases your risk of schizophrenia. So how many parents are going to do that? Not many. More broadly, if you look at the evolution of tech, when I give talks, I show this image from uh, the film Wall Street, where Michael Douglas, who's the rapacious billionaire that you love to hate, to show how rich he is, they've got this scene filmed with him and his mobile phone. And it's like the size of a brick. It's a Motorola Dynatac. It would cost about 10 grand in today's money, and nobody today would buy it. So what happens is that the rich pay through the nose to be early adopters, and a couple years later, new ways of technology show up that are both better, that give more benefits, and are cheaper. So to me, that's a a democratizing effect, and that's a leveling of the playing field rather than a concentration of, of wealth.
1: I agree, as long as it's not layering technology. If it's layering technology that builds upon a previous version, there could be problems. Yeah, that could be.
0: Uh, even so, you know, it, stuff gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So you have my friend Peter Diamandis at Singularity likes to say that a uh, tribesman in rural Africa with a smartphone has more access to information than Ronald Reagan did when he was president of the wealthiest and most powerful country on planet Earth, right? That's, that's a tremendous sea change, and that's what happens with technology.
1: What trends or technologies are you most excited or interested in these days?
0: Well, obviously, clean tech, you know, solar, wind, batteries, uh, digital layers on top of that, platform technologies in biology like CRISPR, platform technologies in, in materials, the materials genome and things like that. But really, if I ask, you know, what's having the greatest impact worldwide? It's really the spread of smart, uh, super capable, super cheap mobile devices that connect to AI in the cloud. That's what is going to put this gigantic amount of power in the hands of billions of people. I and mean, we're, we're on the verge, basically getting to real-time speech translation. So you can imagine that, uh, you know, today, maybe 3 billion people have used the internet. You can imagine in 10 years, almost every adult on planet Earth has uh, a smart device, whether it's a smartphone or AR glasses, I don't know, that has a camera, that has video and audio, that has super high speed internet, and they can access all of the world's information or an awful lot of it, all of the MIT's coursework and have it real time translated into their language. And that gives me chills.
1: And to have conversations with others as well, which infinitely expounce upon that. What are, what are you worried about most?
0: Well, you know, I, I'm a naive optimist sometimes. I think I'm a cynical optimist, but I have always believed that greater connectivity would drive greater empathy and greater compassion. And I think it will. I think, uh, as you were saying about conversing, I think if we could have real-time speech translation of people from other cultures, we might have more cross-cultural empathy. At the same time, we've always known that the internet let little subcultures form that didn't have critical mass. You know, when I was in college, it was clear that internet news groups in the early days of the web were letting goths. Maybe there was one kid in the single rural town who felt a little out of place, and that kid could find his or her tribe online and feel connected to them, which is awesome. But it's also letting tribes of hate uh, form and amplifying their voices. And that concerns me. I still think empathy is winning. I think if you look at Uh, Polls and surveys, America is moving to the left, despite what's happened in in elections. And especially younger generations are tremendously more uh, tolerant than older ones. But small pockets of angry people can spread a lot of vitriol and incite a lot of negative action uh, using these same digital platforms that can bring us together. Twitter's a cesspool. How do we
1: fix something? Or the, the <laughs> dynamic like that is basically the problem.
0: Something like that. And if I had a solution for that, that would be a billion-dollar uh, value. So, yeah, I don't think I do
1: as of yet. It would be a billion-dollar value, or more likely it would probably be free. It would probably be something that couldn't focus on money. That yeah, may, well, in fact, be the problem.
0: Yeah, value and cost are different. It might be a trillion-dollar value that's not monetizable.
1: Exactly. Like the guy who gave up the, the patent for whatever, uh, the cure for pneumonia, just mm. because... It's, yeah, a, it's the right thing to do. What's the most interesting thing you've seen in the last week? Oh, in the last week? Well, I'm fascinated by
0: the the Green New Deal. And uh, I've actually stayed off of Twitter a fair bit lately. But uh, one evening, we were snowed in here in Seattle. And so I just started a bit of a Twitter uh, a tweet storm, I guess, on the Green New Deal and uh, some climate policies. And it was fascinating to see the engagement. Uh, Twitter is not just a cesspool. It's actually a place where ideas can spread Experts can intersect, Uh, ordinary people can get engaged, Uh, people who have expertise in one narrow way can pipe in and add value. And so uh, I felt like the global brain
1: uh, was at work in a positive way. And if you wanted to leave people with one thing, it could be a quote, a call to action, a book to check out, anything. Before you tell them a little bit more about you and where they can find you, what would it be and why? I'd say the future isn't static. The world has gotten
0: tremendously better. That is the trend. uh, And that trend will probably continue, but it's also gotten better because people have worked their butts off to make it better. And so I think that the quote there is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And
1: that's what I'd urge your uh, listeners to do. Which is something you've been doing for quite a while. Where's the best place for people to find you and learn more about your vastly diverse it's <laughs> a little bit random. And uh, On Twitter,
0: I'm at Ramez, at R-A-M-E-Z, or on the web, it's RamezNam.com.
1: Clearly an early guy to the internet if you got at Ramez. <laughs> Indeed. Well played, well played. Thanks so much for coming on today, Ramez. Thank and you. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you've had fun, you know what to do. Share this with a friend or family member so that we can get out there and expose, <laughs> I almost said it's a Trumpian thing, expose ourselves to the world. That would be lovely. No, just uh, get out in front of more people and try to make an impact. Thanks for coming today, Ramis.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for your patience and the, the- and staying on me for how long it took to get this scheduled.
1: Oh, no worries. No worries. Cheers, guys. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWard.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.